Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. It is Wednesday. We are here again with part two of the interview that Motley Fool co-founder and CEO Tom Gardner did with Jack Bogle of the Vanguard Group. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, one of our members, Neil, wants to know what you think of, well, let's take the, uh, the family that I was raised in, which taught us from a relatively early age to buy stocks directly. Um, I'll make the argument on behalf of it. And then Neil wants to know what you think of that argument, where you see strengths and weaknesses to it, and feel free to knock it down entirely. You'll just be knocking my, my whole life to the ground if you do. Oh, will I really be doing that? <laughs> no. Um, so we were raised in a family and taught to invest in stocks. Um, it was a low-cost alternative, a, a one-time payment. And we were taught to, I guess, one of the primary pieces of advice I give to any investor who's buying stocks is double your hold, holding period right now. And, and if, if, you, if you want to do it right after you've done that, it's great, double it again. Because um, just as with a great fund, a great business should be held over at least five years to really see the value of that organization play out in the marketplace. So we were taught to buy stocks, the low cost, one-time transaction, find the great businesses with a great leader um, who's Howard Schultz has been in Starbucks, you know, it's, uh, John Mackey at Whole Foods. These businesses have compounded incredible returns since they came public 20 years ago. And, you know, hitch your wagon to the stars of these really great, often consumer-facing businesses that we can follow. Have to do a lot of numerical work and valuation, et cetera. But that's how we've been building our portfolios and our family. And so our perspective is, and Neil wants to know, what, what do you as a, when, when is it appropriate in your opinion for an individual to buy stocks? Is there a, a level of expertise or interest, a, an amount of time you should have or capital, or it should be a, a side frivolity in, in, in a base portfolio of index funds? That, that last sentence captures it best, and that is you should have a serious money account. I might even call it a boring money account where you put money in the stock market index fund and balance it out a little bit with some bonds, depending on age and so on. And don't look at it. Don't look at it for 50 years. Don't peak. But when you retire, open the envelope. Be sure a doctor is nearby to revive you. <laughs> <laughs> You'll go into a dead faint. You can't believe there's that much money in the world. And that's where we fool ourselves. So that's a serious money, boring money account. We have a gambling culture here in this country, maybe every country does. You see it in its finest manifestation, or maybe I should say worst manifestation, in the lottery, mm -hmm. state lottery. Uh, Las Vegas contributes its share. Uh, the racing, the races contribute their share, the track, and always just gambling, mm -hmm. uh, where you know, a whole lot of people bet their money, and a whole lot of people take their money out, and the croupier wins. Three, three to 20 percent of yeah, whatever, whatever been it is. You put a dollar in, you're um, going to lose. So uh, I'd say have a funny money. If, if, if you have the gambling instinct, and most people do, at least start off. I mean, I'd say start off with an index fund, period. And for five years, don't do anything else. And then look around and see what's happened in the five years. See it felt when the market dropped 50 percent. See it felt when it came back. <clears throat> and those five-year periods are going to be very different for one investor and another. But because uh, they're all, you know, over time. But uh, then when you get there, five percent in the funny money account. What would have happened to Warren Buffett if he had done that? He would have a tremendous <laughs> amount of value would not have been created by his 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 understanding and ability to evaluate a business for investment. Well, 
Name two. <laughs> well, Longleaf, you mentioned Longleaf, Dodging well, Cox. Well, they, they don't have the sensational returns. They may probably have something above par returns, but maybe a little bit below par from time to time. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then don't forget in Warren's case, he wasn't running a mutual fund. Mm -hmm. The mutual fund is a badly structured business for investment management. We say, and this is the way it has to be really, you can take your money out whenever you want, and you've got to be ready to put it in whenever you want. And so you ride on these waves of optimism and good performance, and the money comes in up here, and then reversion to the mean, which is a big part of my recent book, a big part of the final chapter of my recent book called Clash of the Cultures, and it's happened everywhere. It's happened in Magellan Fund. It's happened in T. Rowe Price Growth Fund. It's happened in our old IVEST Fund. It's happened in Fidelity Trend Fund, which Ned Johnson happened to have run. It happened in CGM. All the hot funds, they're all in there for the last 25 years, and they all look like this. You lap, put them over each other, mm -hmm. looks like the Himalaya Mountains. Mm -hmm. The reversion to the mean is a, a constant pattern. For the individual, um, I'm just going to poke around here a little bit just to get your full philosophy. For the individual, it's unlikely that you're going to hit the mountaintop of the Himalayas with your portfolio. So you may not have to ever see the other side of the mountaintop unless you have so successfully invested that your personal account is. Well, moving up in the, in the billion let's, dollar Let's say you asset. bought Magellan before, you, before it was for sale, which is where that record begins, by the way. There's a lot of phoniness in this business. Uh, and, uh, you, but you're, you're going to enjoy the mountain. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to know it's a mountain. Mm -hmm. But when that mountain gets up there, you think, my God, this, I found the holy grail. Now I'm really going to go all in. And now I'm going to go all out. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of behavioral kind of stuff, not mm -hmm. to use too fancy a word, uh, in the mutual fund industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, Tom, there is no behavioralism in the field of stocks generally. How could that be? That is because I'm a dumb behavior. The guy that buys my stock from me is a smart behavior. We offset each other. I mean, it's not as if I, I, it's not as if I can make a behavioral mistake uh, without somebody else making a, 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 a successful behavior thing, the other side of the trade. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think we take a lot for granted. We listen to all these theories and Big, old, boring indexing is the answer. Have you ever bought individual stocks and or actively traded funds? And if so, what do you look for in those investments? Well, I, when I came into the business, I had friends in the brokerage business. I bought this and that and the other thing. And then I had a broker. And he would tell me this was good, get out of that and get into that. And it wasn't that they did badly, which was, of course, what they did. But it was, I just couldn't stand to have my phone ring when I was trying to do my work. So I haven't owned individual stock since, let me say, 1960. I don't know exactly, a long, long time. Uh, I've never bought anybody else's is mutual fund, uh, although I did buy a, like a nice uh, backup investment for my son John's, John Bogle's fund, Bogle, I guess Bogle Small Cap Growth. And uh, so you know, I did that, and it's done actually rather nicely, of course. He's very smart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's about it. Even the um, most successful actively traded funds at Vanguard have a period of three years, sometimes even five years, where they underperform. But net-net, they've outperformed. If, in, in the case of outperforming actively managed funds that, let's just say, they have a few qualities that we probably both love, very low turnover, sustain, you know, um, uh, tenured, leadership, a very fundamental businessly analytical approach.
Um, but even in those cases where the fund is very well run, or even uh, the Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger are going to have a year, a period of a couple of years potentially, where they lose to the market. What's the appropriate amount of time to hold something before saying this this team doesn't really know what they're doing? Well, let me start off with I should explain Vanguard's philosophy as I implemented it, not as they necessarily do today. And that is very early after we closed Windsor Fund back in 1985. It was getting too big, and we started Windsor II. And everybody said it would never do nearly as well as Windsor. And of course, it's done better a little. They track each other very closely, so I don't want to make an issue about that. And then we had U.S. Growth, and uh, that was run by Wellington. We decided we needed a new manager. And I wasn't so sure about them, so I did what set the standards for everything we did since we, everything I did since then, and that is bring in another manager, and then another manager, and then another. So we have a lot of equity funds that have five managers. It's not that it's easy to pick five managers, but if you're comparing yourself with the universe of, let me say, large cap value funds, and there are 50 funds in that universe, five is going to have the same return. It's kind of a law of large numbers thing. So most of our equity funds have five to seven managers. Mm -hmm. So there's not much premium on manager selection. Mm -hmm. You hope they will do well. We're happy to have a good year, be having a good year this year. But we'll have a bad one because that's the nature of the business. Mm -hmm. What you don't want is something that is so departing, departs so far from the market, particularly on the upside. And you don't like it on the downside, but on the upside, it draws money in. It brings in these investors who are looking for the next big thing, the next hot thing. So, um, and we win by about a point and a half a year on average, on average, not because we pick better managers, because we have very low operating costs, our expense ratio. We negotiate the fees way down with the advisors, the fee rates, because the advisors are not starving to death in terms of the dollar fees. And then we've looked, as you said, for long-term managers uh, with lower turnover, and then we had no loads. So if you look at all those numbers, if we're good enough to be average, or lucky enough to be average, we win by about a point and a half a year, which is 20% over 10 years. And I always thought that was quite good enough. Awesome. Is there ever, just a few more questions, is there ever a situation that you can imagine where an individual should own a load fund? Uh, they've sat down with a financial advisor, and now they're watching this video, and they're looking through their portfolios, we're talking, and they see a number of funds that their advisor has put them in that carry a load. Is there ever a situation they should be happy about that? I'd say unequivocally not. Uh, you know, you can look back. The advisor is going to sell you a load fund. He says this no load stuff is bunk. Here's the no load. Here's the no load index, and this fund, even counting the five percent commission, which is roughly where they are today, although a lot of that has changed to advisory fees, and uh, even with that five percent commission, we did fifty percent better. Well, hindsight is always twenty twenty. If they can't find a fund that beat the index, I don't know. They can't be very acute. They can't be paying much attention. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. But don't believe it. The past is not prologue. And actually, if you look at the numbers carefully enough and long enough and thoughtfully enough, you'll see the past performance of a fund is anti-prologue. The better it is than the past, the more the regression to the mean is going to be, the greater that's going to be in the future. Do you believe that we will have a unified fiduciary standard or not? Are you optimistic about that? Uh, Maybe an explain. I mean, I think we've explained what it is for some. Well, they, they, let me just say this: the the issue is a very narrow issue at the moment, and that is the fiduciary standard for people who are selling funds, investment advisors, fee-only investment advisors. 
stockbrokers, things like that. It's, 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 a, it's a firing line level. I think we are making a very big mistake. I've written to the SEC three times about this. And that is the biggest problem of the fiduciary side is on the fund manager side. And we need a federal standard of fiduciary duty for fund managers. And if you look at what's going on at the Labor Department, and I've talked to them down there about this, uh, you looked at the, uh, the fiduciary duty for the corporation and for the evaluator and for this one and that one, but no fiduciary duty for the guy where well, you really need the fiduciary duty, the fund manager. So we do need fiduciary duty. That would tend to get us out of this morass we're in of short-term trading, of high costs, of speculation versus long-term investment because it's the antithesis of trading. And it would probably eliminate the conflict of interest that is obvious if um, your fiduciary has two sets of fiduciary duties. One is fiduciary duty to the mutual funds, and the other is fiduciary duty to the shareholders of his publicly held company or publicly held conglomerate. That fiduciary duty is, those two fiduciary duties are in direct conflict. And so we, of course, quote the Bible. No man can serve two masters. And then we add to that what Matthew said right after that, uh, or Matthew quoted the Lord as saying right after that, I suppose. And that is, for he will hate the one and love the other. Now, in this business, who pays the portfolio managers? Who makes all the money? Who has all the public stockholders? The manager gets all the love. And I won't say they hate the shareholders, I wouldn't say that at all, but they love the managers more. Um, I want to just talk in the end a little bit about the fact that you've been a business leader. We talk about investments, but you started a company and ran that business, and it has $2 trillion in assets today and 14,000 employees. It's a massive, I mean, sure, it's way beyond what you would have dreamed of in 1974, Correct. although I'm sure you were optimistic about it your chances given the solution you'd created, but how do you, how do you evaluate talent, the people that you work with? Um, you know, what, what, were, what were some of the cultural features of Vanguard during your leadership? Well, one of them is exemplified by a story I tell about the time we got to around 200 employees. And I you know, we really ought to have a personnel department human resources, it's called now. Seems like a good idea. And I was you know, really a dictator. So I looked around and tried to see who was not busy in the office. We were very strapped for being able to spend any money. And there was a secretary in the legal department, a very lovely woman. And I talked to our lawyer. We had one lawyer then. We have 140 now. This is called Progress. Uh, and uh, I said, you know, could I use her to run a little uh, personnel effort, interview people? And uh, he said, yeah, I think she can do that. So she gets into my office. I'd like you to do this. Whatever you want, Mr. Bogle. So we talked a little bit, and she started to go out of the office. And she was about to walk out the door, and she turned around and came back in. And she said, you know, I want to do whatever you want me to do, Mr. Bogle. But I don't know what it is you want me to do. And I said, well, I'm not sure I know either. This is what happens when you're a very small company. And I got, had a lot of things on my mind, of course. And I said, I don't know what it is uh, that I want you to do, but let's start with this. Hire nice people, and then make sure that they hire nice people. 
and that's the best I can do on this. You know, most of the jobs at Vanguard, some of the technology jobs are, require a whole lot of professional skill. Most jobs can be done by intelligent human beings with a little experience and a motivation to do them. So I look at Vanguard as not being some, you know, can we hire the best and the brightest? I mean, that's a, that's a big universe, and we probably have our share of them. Uh, but you try and get people that you can work with, that can work well with others. Um, they're going to maybe try and not make the same mistakes you did. Uh, but it's, you know, the change from a little tiny organization, a little embryonic organization, uh, where there is a captain and the rest of the oarsmen <laughs> down below <laughs> on the galley. Uh, and uh, that's obviously oversimplified. But um, we we're very, our mission is very simple. Uh, our, our presentation is very simple. When you think of what we can, what we can uh, explain to people what they should do in investing, it's right out of the proverbial horn book, the ABCs of the old days. And uh, it works, it's understandable and is guaranteed to give you your fair share of whatever returns the stock and bond markets are generous enough to give, give us or mean enough to take away from us. There's a Gallup survey that shows that seven out of 10 people going to work in America today basically say that they're indifferent or even downright negative about the organization they're working for. Um, so in a funny way, in that, in that rowboat scenario where we're all rowing together, in many organizations, more than half of the people don't even really care about what they're doing. Well, so obviously, we, you've found people who are passionate about the principles. Yeah, we have more we have more turnover than I would like, but you know that happens at kind of these middle grade job levels. Our people are well paid; they've got terrific benefits, the partnership plans they share in the earnings we generate for shareholders, and I still spend uh, an hour with each award for excellence winner, the program I put in there all those years ago. Uh, and there are probably about eight a quarter. So I get to sit down and talk to eight people a quarter. It may not sound like much in, the, in an organization that big. 32 a year, 320 in 10 years, 640 in 20 years. So I feel I have a pretty good, now these are exceptional people, that's why they got the award for excellence. So I'm not kidding myself. But we have human conversations, uh, talk about commitment, talk about opportunity, talk about the lack of opportunity talk about anything they want to talk about. And uh, they're, they're among the most engaging and pleasant moments of my career. Mm. Um, you're in the unique position of having started, run the company, and now sit as an observer of your creation. Um, succession is such a big issue for so many. We have a lot of business, small business owners that are at the Molly Fool, and thinking about that. What, what have you learned, or what do you think about? I mean, you're in, in a very, I think in a very I find it to be a very a great thing that you have minor lovers' quarrels with things that are happening at the company that you created, which I think is a intellectually stimulating must be for you and for the organization to think. And and so how is that experience for you? Well, it's difficult. Let me be honest about it. It's difficult. Uh, the uh, I've had to fall back. The company is not particularly smitten with my uh, directness and outspokenness in my books, uh, and. Uh, so, people don't like criticism, generally speaking, but I'm just trying to tell it the way I see it. And uh, I'd say my book, The Clash of the Cultures, 
almost entirely reads like a great big commercial for Vanguard, but there's some, some things they don't like in there. Mm -hmm. Talking about the Wellington Fund fee increase, which I was un believe was unjustified. Talking about our proxy voting policies. Talking about the uh, possibility of having a, a transaction tax and a bunch of other things that are, that are similar to that. And uh, so I finally had to develop a response. And when someone says, well, I understand you disagree with Vanguard, at that point I said, absolutely not. I would never disagree with Vanguard. Vanguard disagrees <laughs> with me. <laughs> so, um, and it's their right. Mm -hmm. So you're optimistic about what Vanguard will become over the next hundred years? That, well, that the, it, it, where you are, I mean, I, you have to be optimistic. I mean, there are things, risks out there. Will they ever try and demutualize the company? That has happened in a lot of places. I don't think it can happen there, but anything can happen in this world when you get human beings involved. Uh, I think it's important, uh, even as we maintain the letter uh, or the implementation of a mutual structure, we have to maintain the spirit of that mutual structure too. And that requires some doing. Uh, you've got to keep your mind on the mission, that your mission is to serve day after day after day. Uh, it's very difficult to see anything that can get in the way of that except some massive thing like a huge stock market collapse. It would not be good for us. And uh, every once in a while we depart some of these new funds. I have a little question mark about, you know, you must be betting they're better than an index fund. I wouldn't even look. I just say I bet they're not uh, because nothing can be in the long run. So, you know, I watch. Uh, I think uh, people at Vanguard Really, I don't want to overdo this, but I think they love me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a normal human being, uh, more or less normal anyway, <laughs> and uh, I'm straightforward. They, they can identify with that, and uh, you know, even the people that have been there for a very short period of time seem seem to know who I am. It's, it's total authenticity, which means sometimes we'll agree, sometimes we won't agree. Yeah, it's it's a member of ours named Vicky was bringing up the importance of skin in the game. It's you've had skin in the game with the business and have your capital with the Vanguard funds uh, to this day. Mm -hmm. So the mix of those qualities, um, even though it may lead to some public disagreement, is overall a benefit to both the organization, to you, and to the outcome for the customers of that. Yeah, I really don't care who benefits or who doesn't benefit. I have to tell it as I see it, mm -hmm. and I've been able to do that for a long, long time. It was key to Vanguard's, well, actually Vanguard going into business. You know, you walk a road that you think is the right, right road. You walk it as straight as you can. You'd be as honest as you can. Uh, I've gotten so, I find confessing my mistakes, of which the number in my career, well, I don't even want to get into hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many I've made, infinite maybe numbers of career. It's kind of liberating mm -hmm. to say, I really blew that one. Mm -hmm. And I blew a lot of stuff, but the underlying thesis, if you will, the underlying concept, the underlying idea of owning the market, whatever the market may be, and getting your fair share has worked and will work. Who else can say that about what's going on in their own company? Small failures all the way to great success. Yeah. Um, my final question, um, how are you spending your time now? I mean, an, an incredible part of your story, which we haven't talked about, but when we've talked to you on the radio, about you know your, your human heart. How old is your heart right now? Well, my heart is, um, I got it when it was 26, and I've had it for almost 18 years. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, you're a year younger than I am. Forty-two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm starting to feel a little more like eighty-four. <laughs> And you know the, the trail in, in recent years has been a little difficult, uh, physical trail. I've had some very profoundly serious problems, uh, long hospitalizations. But you know you go into them optimistically. Uh, you get out of my wife is a powerful support, and my kids are wonderful. And uh, you get over the bumps. You're always optimistic. You know the idea when you go into a hospital again is you. They put you down on the gurney and you just go, here we go again. And uh, like the whole business of the transplant, uh, my, my reaction is just the same, Tom. If I thought jumping up and down on the kitchen table and screaming and yelling about the unfair fairness of life would help my condition, I would do it. <laughs> but it occurs to me it would make it even worse. So you kind of go along, uh, you speak out with honesty, I mean, I'm not trying to say something to hurt somebody, but I'm, I'm not going to agree with something I don't agree with. And, uh, you know, I think, I think Vanguard it, it benefits from that immensely. You know, the shareholders, still close to a lot of them, still got a lot of co correspondence, still writing a lot. Um, I have a, an article about to come out in the Journal of Portfolio Management, another article about to come out in the Financial Analyst Journal. I'll forward to a book about Paul Cabot, one of the founders of the industry I wrote the forward to, and a book about John Maynard Keynes, published by, I think it's Oxford University Press, and which I write the final chapter called Adam Smith and Capitalism. And uh, so, and I, oh, I did a forward for John Wasik's book mm -hmm. on Keynes, uh, John Maynard Keynes as an investor. Mm -hmm. So great I got guess. Keynes, I got Adam Smith, I've got one of the industry's founders, and uh, I've got two academic articles, and starting to worry that I'm going to run out of things to do. I don't think that's possible, Jack. And, you know, anytime you need any extra work that you'd want to do, just come hang out with fools. Okay. <laughs> well, you've been a good fool, Tom. Well, it all started with Bogle's Folly. So yeah. there is... We, uh, we're, we're associated. By, we're bound by name. But yeah. Jack Bogle, thank you so much for taking time. And it's, it's, uh, we could continue this conversation for another hour, but let's let you get on with your day. And we tire. <laughs> we tire. Thanks, Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Tom, very much. That is our show for today. We'll be back tomorrow with yet another interview. Uh, tomorrow's will be featuring an interview that Morgan Housel did with blogger and financial advisor Josh Brown. We'll see you then.
That is our show for today. We'll be back tomorrow with part two of this interview. We'll see you then.